Well, good morning, Central. My name is Zach, and I'm part of the staff team at Central. And um, I'm currently at Central Hall because it turns out having a newborn means that predictable quiet time isn't that easy to come by. Uh, but we're reaching the end of our series on prayer in the next few weeks. And we're spending these last few weeks looking at the topic of yielding in the life of our prayer. And uh, it's a, such a crucial part of our prayer lives. It's the space where we acknowledge God's kingdom over our own. His will, not ours. His lordship and our need. And to submit ourselves to his leading. And we're going to focus this morning on one specific area of yielding. And that's the theme of confession. Now, the word confession might throw up all sorts of connotations for you. It could throw up ideas of Catholic confessional booths, or maybe even the idea of revealing dark secrets, um, or maybe actually feelings of judgment from the past. If you're into the Marvel Universe, which I not so secretly am, there is um, a TV series called Daredevil, and in the opening credits of this uh, TV series, Matt Murdock, who is this blind vigilante, sits in a confessional booth across from a priest. And he begins by telling this elaborate story about his dad, who's a boxer, about all the various wins and defeats that this boxer has in his career. And the priest interrupts him at one point and says, it might help me if you actually told me what you had done. And Matt responds by saying, I'm not seeking penance for what I've done, but forgiveness for what I'm about to do. And in the next scene, he's fighting criminals and doing the thing that vigilante superheroes do. And of course, it's quite an attention-grabbing start to a TV series, and uh, there's part of me, and probably something instinctive in all of us, that quite likes to cheer on the vigilante who's putting the world to rights with their fists at all costs, unapologetically. But there's nothing really repentant or hesitant about his actions after that scene. And I think the implication behind it, and I think actually the way the Western media has largely portrayed the idea of sin and confession is that it's a bit outdated. It's far better to think about self-justification than it is to think about repentance. And if I just explain myself in the right way, then actually I won't really have done anything wrong. Or maybe if I just understand myself a little bit better, then my actions might make more sense. And you can see that narrative being played out in culture, can't you? Here's a few examples that I've definitely never used. <laughs> So one, I was, someone might say, I was quite judgmental of someone's work today, but you know, I'm a type one in the Enneagram scale, so I'm a bit of a perfectionist and their work wasn't really their best. So it makes sense, doesn't it? That's all right that I was like that and responded that way. Or maybe another one is um, that I, on the way home, I got irrationally angry at someone who was driving in front of me. And you say, well, you know, he cut me off. I, I could have died. So they deserve my wrath. They deserve the wrath of my horn and my anger. And you know, everyone gets road rage from time to time, don't they? So that's okay, isn't it? True confession sits at odds with the world's way of dealing with our stuff. Because it, it requires us to admit that we haven't got everything together. That we fail, that we mess up, and that we need help. And when we can't admit our need for help, the only alternative is to close ourselves off, to try to justify our actions, and even to get offended when someone even gently suggests that we've got something wrong. 
In reality, what we end up doing is closing ourselves off to others and to the incredible gift of forgiveness that is offered in Jesus. Or as Pete Gregg puts it in the book we've been reading together, How to Pray, clenched fists and pointed fingers close our hands to grace. And so this morning, I want us to take some time to reset our understanding of the act of confession in prayer by looking at a parable that Jesus shares in Luke chapter 18. I think it provides us a better way to engage with God and with the world around us. Looking at chapter 18 of Luke, starting from verse 9, we'll read that together. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a, difference, a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So in the midst of a series of teachings in the, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus offers this parable to the crowds. And his choice of characters is interesting, isn't it? As is often the case with Jesus' teaching. In this case, it's a holy man and a sinner, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And we might, if we're familiar with these kinds of stories, we might think, oh, here's another one of those underdog stories where the person that's not expected is going to come up and win it. But we must always remember the real comparison that Jesus was making here. Pharisees were seen as good, holy men. Externally, their actions were above reproach. They went to great lengths to ensure that was the case. And according to their day and those around them, the Pharisees were seen as morally faultless, really, in how they lived and presented themselves. And then let's look at the tax collector. A tax collector was seen in those days as a traitor and as a thief. In our time, it would be the equivalent of the modern-day con artist who calls elderly people and convinces them to give over bank details. You know that kind of sick feeling in your stomach when you see outright injustice being perpetrated in someone who's vulnerable. That kind of sick feeling that you get. That's how people would have felt about tax collectors. That kind of visceral reaction. And these are the two characters that Jesus is setting up and presents in this parable. This is the contrast. And both are coming to the temple to pray. And their approach is quite telling. The Pharisee is filled with confidence and he steps in he stands in a place where everyone will see him and he announces his perfect keeping of the law and how comparatively good he has been. You could almost imagine the crowds looking at him and watching with awe as they see this revered man publicly explain and set out the standard for godliness. And then we have the tax collector who stands in the corner away from the eyes of the crowds. And unlike the Pharisee, his lifestyle and actions, they, they don't give him any confidence. He knows only God's actions can save him. And so instead he beats his breast and says, To God alone, God have mercy on me, 
a sinner. And so the scene is set. Two characters are presented. And you can see almost the crowd nodding at Jesus' assessment so far. This is a good comparison, they remember to one another. The Pharisee is justified. His actions are exemplary. The tax collector knows his place and knows how dire the situation is. And then just as they get a handle of the situation, Jesus makes his assessment of the scene. He says these words, I tell you. And that's quite a potent phrase. That's the phrase that the rabbis would use when they were about to introduce a new teaching. You've heard this before, I tell you this. Jesus says, I tell you, only one man left the temple in right standing before God, and it wasn't the Pharisee. It wasn't the man who'd done externally everything right. It was the social pariah. It was the tax collector. You could almost hear the crowd gasp. Because you see, the Pharisee has missed the point entirely. In the process, he sets himself up for a fall in two ways. And I just want to unpack both. The first and most important error that the Pharisee makes is that he puts his faith in his own efforts. You just have to look at the kind of prayer that the Pharisee prays. So let's look at it quickly together just now. When you glance at it, there's no mention of God's activity, of God's character. In fact, he's kind of just paying lip service to God. Instead, this is how he launches into praying. He says, God, I thank you that I. He says, I thank you that I. (laughs) He prays thanking God for his own actions almost immediately. He says, thank you, God, that I have done what I've done and I give what I give. There is no real space for God in the life of this man. And if there is no room for God, then there is no space for the saving activity of God. Describing this, the Pharisee, the American pastor Tim Keller says, the one who thinks himself justified by their actions is in worse shape and is in fact in a more deadly position for they have deceived themselves. They have a spiritual blindness and this blindness leads to destruction. Because you see, this approach is an outward in approach. It says, my value, my goodness, my importance, my worth, is reliant upon my external actions. That's what tells me where I stand and who I am. And the thing is, it's quite a convincing approach for the most part. It works so long as you find yourself in a job that you think is satisfying and meaningful, so long as you busy yourself with good social work, so long as you succeed in what you believe to be good parenting or good relationships, whatever that good measure that you might be carrying is. And all of that is well and good up to a point. But when those things are stripped away, which they may be at some point, when those external activities aren't there to lean on, for example, when your children become adults and don't need you in the same way, or when the work that you're doing is complete, the campaign comes to an end and change has happened, even maybe when relationships which were easy for a while become hard work, then where do we place our value? For many of us, lockdown has actually been a bit of a rude awakening to some of this, hasn't it? As job security has wavered and social activity has been restricted and we've had to take more time to reflect on where we are. As these externals have been pulled away from us, it reveals something of where we place our value, doesn't it? Of where our identity lies. 
Where are we placing our faith this morning? Is it in God or is it in ourselves? We, we might know what the right answer is supposed to be, but if we're honest, in the midst of this challenging season, where do we find ourselves? Many of us have faced an unbusy version of ourselves in this last little while. And maybe I've already been doing some of this kind of self-reflection and asking these kinds of questions. And it is hard. I want us to continue to build a picture of the Pharisees so that we understand fully where he's coming from and also then we can understand better how we can respond. Where first he puts faith in his own actions. Secondly, he becomes a slave to comparison. So let's look, at, let's look again at his prayer. What is he really thankful for when you break it down? He's thankful that compared to others, he's doing a good job. And the list of people he has in this comparison are robbers, evildoers, adulterers. And then the personal kick is he points at the tax collector at the side of the room and says, thank you that I'm not like him. So you see, without space for God, without acknowledgement of God's saving activity, without God's character as a benchmark, when we place our faith in our own actions as a Pharisee has, the only way to really define whether we're on the right track or not is in comparison with others. The, the Apostle Paul writes about this when he's writing to the Christians in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians. He says, We're not, understand, putting ourselves in a league with those who boast that they are superiors. We wouldn't dare do that. But in all this comparing and grading and competing, they quite miss the point. A life lived in comparison misses the point. But it is really the only option for the Pharisee because he has set his attention on external. If we set our attention on our externals and our external actions, if we determine how good we are and by that measure, our eyes will naturally begin to wander and look at those around us and compare ourselves to them and measure how good we're doing, whether we're ahead of them or behind them or in the same standing as them. I wonder how many of us find ourselves in this category. If I'm almost honest, I sometimes do myself. I can at times realize that I have learned more on my comparative success. I've learned more on that than I have in my relationship with God. So with that set up, with how the Pharisees approach God in full view, let's have a look at what the tax collector does differently. And what all of this has to do with confession in our lives of prayer. So you see, confession in prayer is the heart response of the tax collector. And it is the antidote to this outward in approach of living. And there are two ways in which this is the case. And I want to look briefly at each. First, confession releases us from the need to be our own saviour. And let's look at verse 13 so you can see how that plays out. Let's look at the difference in the posture of the tax collector. Where the Pharisee has set himself apart to draw attention to the crowds, the tax collector stands at a distance and addresses God alone. And the words he uses is hugely telling. I don't know if you see that. He says, God, have mercy on me, 
a sinner. He fully addresses God, not just paying lip service. And he says, God, make amends for me. That's what the word mercy means here. Make me right in your eyes. He throws himself onto the arms of God and recognizes his need for God. All of us have stuff we're not proud of, places in our lives and each day where we recognize we didn't quite hit the mark, where we were selfish, where we set our own agenda and stepped on others to see it through. And all of those things are sin. It's that desire in us to make everything about ourselves, to ignore God and to live as though the world revolves around us. We do it in big ways and small ways, in subtle judgments and in offhand remarks, as well as in selfish decisions and in destructive behaviours. I am not proposing the solution to that is that we ought to live a life of self-deprecation or micro-analyzing every decision and motivation that we make. But instead, what, was, what is being offered here is the opportunity to lay ourselves down again in prayer, to confess those places of conscious and subconscious sinful decisions. The things that we do each day that we know of and even the things that we don't. And this practice of confession, of saying to God, have mercy on me, it throws us into the arms of God again. And it opens us up to the fountains of God's grace and mercy. When we confess our need of God and our places of sin, we are met again and again with a Saviour who wants to pour out his grace and forgiveness. That's what the cross opens up for us, never ceasing streams of mercy. Or as Pete Gregg says, there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. So first, the act of confession reminds us of the need for God and releases us from being our own saviors. The second thing that confession does in our life and prayer is it releases us from comparison. If you look at still at verse 13, the, the way the tax collector prays is, is hugely telling, where the Pharisee is justified himself by how he views others and comparing to others. The tax collector is just focused on himself entirely. You see, if we realize that all of us have stuff, all of us need a savior, and all of us are met with the same grace and forgiveness in Jesus, then we don't need to measure ourselves. We don't need to measure our worth and our progress by how we compare to those around us. Confession levels the playing field because it keeps us from ever tricking ourselves into thinking that we've got to sort it on our own. It's easier said than done, isn't it? When we see on, online the best version of everyone else. It's very hard not to begin to compare when we see that. In fact, I'd say it's probably never been harder or a more challenging time in history for us not to feel the desire to compare with others. Especially when marketing is now designed to personally track what you attract what you have and don't have and convince you that what you don't have is what you need. <laughs> but what confession and prayer does is it releases us from the need to compare to others. Because it levels us again. It reminds us that our value is found in Jesus and that we need him more than anything else. 
We desperately need him. For some of us, we still aren't sure whether we want to go all in, to say yes to God. And this morning, I just want to encourage you again to consider saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to his work, to his forgiveness and mercy, and to lay down the stuff we know we've not got right, and to lay down the need to place our value and worth on the things that we do. For others of us, we've known this truth for the longest time. But as we've been reflecting this morning, we've realized it's become more of an intellectual exercise than it is something which is played out in reality in our lives. When we think about the way that we live, the things that motivate us, we've realized that we place too much worth in comparison, in how well we're doing in relation to others. We'd love to pray for you if that is the case. For you to know the joy of the salvation in Jesus again this morning. And to be able to lean again on him. And for all of us, no matter where we're standing, this passage is a great reminder of the importance of building a rhythm of confessional prayer. And so our prayer practice this week is actually a simple and yet an ancient and profound prayer which will help us to build this rhythm. It's often called the Lord Jesus Prayer, and it's a rework of the prayer the tax collector prayed in that passage. It's only eight words long, and the words are these. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. We want to encourage you to have a go at praying these words every day, throughout the day. And to find a way of associating it with something so you don't forget to do it. Maybe you want to set an alarm every hour or write it and put it somewhere prominent like beside your bed so you see it when you first wake up and when you last go to sleep. Find a way to have that, these words present with you throughout the week so you remember to pray them. And in a moment we're going to respond in worship together as well. But I'd like us actually to pray these words together to finish. Together in our homes, out loud, a few times, slowly. And it's going to appear at the bottom of the screen, just in case you've forgotten what they are as well. And as we pray these words over, allow them to sink deeply in us. Remind us of the Lordship of Jesus, to remind us of the mercy of God, and to remind us of our need for his forgiveness and grace. And trust that as we do this, we will receive that again. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's say it one more time. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner.